You're listening to In Network, Nordic's podcast series where we explore healthcare and technology with experts from around the globe. Hello, and welcome to the In Network podcast feature, Designing for Health. I'm Nordic's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Craig Joseph. And I'm Nordic's Head of Thought Leadership, Dr. Jerome Pagani. We recently chatted with Dr. Kareem Jessa, Chief Medical Information Officer at Toronto's Hospital for Sick Kids. Kareem shares with us his perspective as a physician in Canada and how our health industries differ, what the state of information technology is like there, and what electronic health record adoption has looked like in the past decade. He also describes what clinician burnout looks like in Canada, incentives for Canadian healthcare providers to pursue meaningful use, and his work collaborating with the Creative Destruction Lab. Let's plug in. Kareem Jessa, welcome to the pod. Thanks so much, Craig. Uh, great to be here. I'm honored to be part of such an esteemed group because I hear you've only had like presidents and prime ministers on this. And so, well, thanks for including me. You're, 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 you're very welcome. And you're correct. Uh, we have had some secretaries of state and prime ministers of foreign countries as well. So you might not actually make the cut. We'll see if this actually gets to gets to be released ever. But uh, Kareem, I'd like to start off by uh, summarizing how you got into the position that that you are now, that you find yourself in now. And uh, if you've been a listener, uh, you'll note sometimes I get it wrong. So my understanding is that when you were four, you told your mother that you wanted to be a doc in the eMERGE at Sick Kids, and she thought that was odd. And um, But you, you've always wanted to be uh, an emergency uh, medicine doctor, and you've always wanted to work with kids, and you've always wanted to be an IT geek. Are, are, are any of those things true? Um, well, I've always wanted to be a doctor. You're, you're incorrect. It wasn't four. It was actually five. Um, but, you know, pretty close. That, that's not bad. But no, I, I always knew that I wanted to be a physician. But uh, about IT, um, I, that just kind of fell into my lap um, as I just gained more interest. And I was kind of geeky. Um, but I really liked emergency medicine because whenever I did a rotation in medical school or anything like that, I just like the acute stuff, like the detective work of reaching a diagnosis and uh, just looking after the acute stuff. And then I would hand it over to the internal medicine or surgery or anything to take care of the rest of it. And then, and then move on, you know, short, short span of attention. Um, so that's, uh, that's how I got into medicine. But, uh, you know, I was, uh, even as a high school student, I was a part of a, I was a cadet with St. John ambulance and, you know, uh, doing doing that kind of first aid at the at like concerts and things like that. So I was really keen as a as a teen um, in high school and junior high. Wow. Um, uh, many people don't know that I also I went to medical school to become an emergency medicine doctor. And then I spent a few nights at a, a hospital called Detroit Receiving in, in downtown Detroit as a medical student. And I said, uh, no, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, because it's all fun and games until someone tries to die. And uh, I don't, I didn't appreciate their attitude. So I'm glad though, that there are people like you who were, uh, who, you know, continued on and, and didn't uh, give up as quickly as I did. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, as a resident, uh, we spent two months in shock trauma in, in Baltimore. And that was like one in three call that you had to do. And I remember when it came to my turn to look after a patient, um, a young person came in with a gunshot wound and unfortunately didn't make it. And as I'm filling out the death papers and everything, I realized that 
um, that person had the same birthday as me. And wow. it kind of hit close to home to be able to say, wow, that's exactly, that's exactly what I said. And, you know, it, it makes you realize the, the importance and gratitude of life and, and how, um, how we just have to be so appreciative of what we have. So. Wow. That, that, uh, <laughs> that will kind of, uh, shock your senses. Uh, I'm glad you were on the, on the right side of that. All right, let's, uh, we've gone dark pretty quickly, Kareem. Normally it takes us 10 or 15 minutes to get dark on this podcast. <laughs> um, uh, you may realize that you are the first Canadian on, on the pod. And, um, and I don't mean any pod. Uh, I think there are, have been Canadians on podcasts before, but you're the first one on this podcast. And so it might help us for, to, to get kind of a quick overview of the Canadian health system in a sentence or two, I, I, you know, I think most of us know that you have socialized medicine up there, uh, but we're not, we don't really know what that means. Does everyone work for the government? Are there private insurance companies? How do they interact? How, you know, how does it differ um, at a high level from the experience that patients and, and clinicians have in the U S sure. So I'm, I'm by no means an expert in the Canadian healthcare system. I'm a, I'm a user of the system as well. Um, and, uh, I try to rationalize the resources as well. Um, but in a nutshell, yeah, we are, uh, we have a central payer, the, the, the federal government, as well as healthcare being a provincial mandate. So each province in Canada has uh, is responsible for uh, administering the healthcare, um, and within the province, uh, different regions get allocated resources. And so, in the hospital, which I'm going to speak about, you know, we get a global budget, and there's different funding models based on acuity and based on volumes. Um, that is somewhat opaque. Um, and there is private healthcare insurance, but mostly for like ancillary services or those things not covered. And more and more we're finding is that a lot more things are becoming uh, privatized. There's been a, uh, you know, a, a push here to be able to say, do we have a two tier system? Like, do we need a private and public like to have in the NHS? Um, you know, would that be something in, in, in Canada? But a little bit more provocative is I think we do already have a two-tiered system. Like not all things are covered uh, for in the public system. Um, so if you've got private insurance, you can get rapid rapid access to like mental health services or, or not. So for example, like even casting and things like that, or, or um, medical devices, splints and things in the public system, those things are not covered. You'd have to pay cash or you get it covered through, through private insurance. But if you want to get just like a plaster cast, you can get that. If you want a fiberglass cast, maybe not. Um, you know, things, just things of that nature. Um, and from a remuneration point of view, we do not become employees of the government per se. Um, and in some hospital models, the physicians are either salaried through the hospital or you bill the, the, the province, you bill the Ministry of Health on a fee-for-service basis. So it's it just depends what kind of a you know um, alternative funding prong AFP or uh, AFA or like an alternative alternative funding arrangement that you have with the facility that you're working at. So hopefully that answers the question. <laughs> and we don't have huge health systems. So the other piece of that is that um, each hospital really is run by its own board and can determine what they want to do. So, for example, you can have seven 
hospitals in Toronto on some EMR, and it's up to them to decide to either go on all in on one system or each have separate instances of, say, Cerner, Epic, Meditech. For us at SickKids, we are CEOs between SickKids and Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, which is a children's hospital about 400 kilometers away uh, from us we made a decision to go on the same instance of Epic. Now, that doesn't mean that everything is aligned. It just means that where we need to align, we align, and where we don't, we we can deviate because we have separate MACs, we have separate boards, and, and that's so we're trying to get more collaboration going. But it's been a great partnership so far. Hopefully that answers that question. Well, I, you know, I was just hoping for you to say uh, it's different and then uh, <laughs> move on. But the detail, I think, was very helpful. Cream, what's, uh, what's the state of information technology like in Canada right now? Do all hospitals uh, have um, electronic health records and all physician offices? And then most importantly, uh, do all the hospitals have a Tim Hortons in them? I mean, I need to know this because the Tim bits are like near and dear to my heart. Okay, so um, I'm pleased to announce that most hospitals have Tim Hortons in them. So, you know, I, can, I think so we passed that bar which is really great and but the menus vary you know um so you have to be just be careful and the best part of that is the mobile app ordering where you can sort of come up and order the the tim but you know let's we can talk about that in a future podcast um i would just suggest that um you know i think from a from a stimulus point of view i think the high tech act and the era act really was stimulus for us uh, and meaningful use and billions of dollars were put in that that did not happen in Canada. As I mentioned, it's up to each hospital to determine what's in their best interest to go forward. So from a from a HIMS level, um, you know, most hospitals in Canada are at like a HIMS level three, maybe, you know, three, three point two, maybe four. You're getting more and more hospitals going, you know, achieving that higher growth because I think you see the benefit from a safety, quality, uh, and usability perspective. Um, Sick Kids is a HIMSS level seven. Us and Chio uh, went through that a couple of years ago, and uh, we're just coming up for re reevaluation or revalidation in the next year. Um, so we're looking at that. Um, we're one of the, I think we're the first pediatric hospitals in Canada to go through that. I think only 3% of hospitals or 2% of hospitals are HIMSS level seven in Canada. Um, a lot of them are the big academic sites are five and six and are, are pushing towards that. And there's different levels of becoming electronic in terms of most places are now on CPOE, um, but clinical documentation is the other piece where it's not, you know, physician documentation is maybe on paper or might be hybrid a lot of places. And are, are there incentives in place for hospitals to well, climb the HIMSS level ladder or uh, is it really just up to the individual? Yeah, that's a great question. So I know um, there were there were incentives uh, in the past for family doctors' offices where Ontario MD, which is a, a subsidiary of one of the ministry branches, had incentivized physician offices to go on EMR. But they didn't say you'll go on this EMR. They didn't really build anything for interoperability between primary care and hospitals. So that that information flow between the primary care office and the hospital and hospital back to the primary care is a little bit 
um, muddled in Ontario, uh, per se. But when you look at places like Alberta, potentially, who have gone province-wide on, say, Epic, there, there's more opportunity now for um, cross-pollinization and interoperability. And you've got places like Nova Scotia and Newfoundland um, going to, you know, provincial-wide deployments of, of EMRs, where hopefully that will work. But as you know, that's really based on, like, you, you need to have good thought leadership uh, on in terms of integration and, and making sure that the workflows are conducive to meaningful outcomes. Um, so hospitals are not really incentivized to, to do that. It's it's funny that you you mentioned that it's a little questionable, a little sketchy in Ontario, getting the you know primary care to hospital, getting that information. In, in the U.S., I used to a long long time ago work for one of those EHR vendors, and um, uh, we used to demo the ability for a patient to go into their primary care doctor, be seen, uh, have some lab results done, you know, in the office, and and then be sent to the um, emergency department. Uh, and, and when we showed that the doctors in the emergency department could see the note that was just quickly written by the, the primary care doctor and could see the point of care tests that had been done and the vital signs, um, people kind of were shocked. And, and nowadays, uh, as you mentioned, you can, you can order from Tim Hortons from your phone. And we take that for granted in the U S I think the, the vast majority of us do that that uh, we've come far enough that it's not, yeah, of course I could see everything that just happened five minutes ago in, in, a, in the primary care doctor's office or the urgent care before the patients uh, referred in to, to the uh, emergency department. And um, it, does, it does take some noting that that's not the, that's not the case everywhere. And, it, and uh, I, I like how you, you, you mentioned some provinces are further ahead because they've been thinking about those things or, or actually started a little bit maybe later and could see some of the work that you've done in other, in, in other uh, areas. Yeah, I think from an interoperability perspective, I, I think that we, we're creating um, organic opportunities, especially around the Epic sites and, and you know, trying to just trying to be a vendor agnostic, but it's hard because we're leveraging, say, Care Everywhere and Epic to be able to share information between hospitals between hospitals, not primary care and hospitals. So we're trying to uh, look at different types of integration engines to be able to say, do we create an internet integration hub between Cerner hospitals and Meditech hospitals? Because we do have those in our, in our province here to be able to say, are we gonna share CCD documents uh, and what have you? But then, you know, you start getting into information overload and say, how do we filter out because what might be an allergy at one hospital may not be either documented or be considered an allergy. Maybe like, you know, all those different uh, interoperability standards to be able to say, what, what are we, what are we going to uh, uh, land on um, for, um, for that information to be consumed from a third party? So we're having issues with like referrals. We're having issues with lab, lab results being showed from that when they're ordered in a, in a outside lab, not in a sick kids lab, but say one of our 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 lab testing facilities, we have so the the workflow would be child comes into sick kids, but lives way far out, and we have to send them the lab requisition to be done at their at their local town. Um, how does that order get closed loop so that we can get the results back in? The technical infrastructure exists to be able to do it because it all reports into the Ontario lab information system, all OLIS 
And now where there's a project to consume that information back into Epic. So we're, but, but we're having to build fund and build that ourselves. Um, there's some help from the ministry from one-time funding and things, but, but that's really on our, on our dime. Kareem, are there differences between the way physicians in Canada and the U.S. use the AHR that aren't necessarily dependent on sort of their level? Yeah, it's a great question, Jerome. Um, you know, if you look at a study, I think that uh, Chris Longhurst and Mike South did, I think that talked about the burden of documentation and the length of notes and things like that. In the U.S., you know, we kind of we kind of laugh a little bit to be able to say, well, their documentation in the U.S. is so tied to their funding um, and what what the insurance companies will provide and level of service and this and that. I don't even understand it. So I may just be spewing out things that that might be coming out. And that's less important in Canada. Not saying that documentation is not important, but you know, what you can bill for a like a comprehensive and things like that. There's some loose guidelines around that. Um, but for a consult note, like you know, you have to have make sure you have a referral, you have to know who referred, and then you have to send a note back to the clinician. That's essentially it for a consult note. You don't have to hit like five things from review of systems and seven things from physical exam or what have you. So it's 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 widely variable, but it's really on the question of usability. And the EMRs, you know, I remember when we went live, it's like, oh, wouldn't it be great to be able to pull in this information and pull in this information and pull in this inf- information? But there's numerous studies that say how much of an issue is copy and paste and readability and whether you do a soap note and or, or an apso note and and things like that right to be able to bring the you know um the assessment and plan at the top of the note and and just give me just just the facts ma'am just the facts right um if you want to if you want to just keep it keep it simple because you know it's information or overload versus filter failure right that's that's the uh that's the tagline i always use so which one is it how do you um, what do you tell your your doctors about uh, bringing in important information, but not too much information? Is it is every is it every doctor for themselves, or is there are there some guidelines? So it's a great question, uh, Craig. What we did was um, through our physician builder program and some really talented clinicians, um, you know Jennifer Russell, you know Sean Silver, and Chiwetio. They really did a great job on getting a standardized discharge summary, so a discharge template where you would be able to give the clinician an option of saying, "Okay, do you want to just bring in the last, the last most recent labs, the last two days labs, things like that?" So you wouldn't automatically pull those things in because it just becomes over overuse. We tried to build some flexibility and some standardization, but as you know, our EMR is. You know, the good the good news is it's very configurable and the bad news is it's very configurable because everybody can sort of do their own thing. But um, we're, we're trying to get there through standardization. We're not there yet, but you can send everything right to to your primary care offices. And we're still on fax, by the way, uh, a lot of us. Uh, so, you know, there's a there's a movement towards axing the fax and we can we can talk about that. Um, but until we have good interoperability and things like that. You know, I always say you're going to ax the facts and uh, replace it with what? Lick the stamp? Like, is that where we're getting to? Um, because unless you can have really good, solid communication between acute care and primary care, you know, unfortunately, facts technology is quite reliable. And I think 
maybe your podcast re- replies will be like, who's this Jessa guy who's in the, you know, in the dark ages, you know, facts. Are you kidding me? Uh, that's why Canadian healthcare is so bad. But dude, can you find a, fa- a machine that you could plug in, put in a phone line and now it works right without having to configure everything. So, hey, hey, but, listen, I dig- but I digress. I digress, we, Craig. Sorry. We have plenty of fax machines in the United States and, and we make excellent use of them. Now, they're typically, I will be honest and say that they're not actually machines. They're servers that act like fax machines. Um, and it is fun to show uh, younger physicians a fax machine, an actual fax machine and and get their response. But um, no, it's it's uh, it's it's no different in the, in the U.S. when we're trying to go from from one place to another. Oftentimes it's just faster and easier and I can send you a document and then you can I can call you in five minutes and know that you received that actual copy of the document. It works. Yeah, when we yeah, when we had we had a um, cyber attack at the end of December last year and we had a lot of those network printer facts uh, all in ones, which went offline. And so we had to actually pull out some of these relics or the facts because we needed, still needed that technology. So we had to plug, the, you know, where did we store those again? And, 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 uh, and we had to actually bring them back, um, which was interesting. Um, wow. So with, anyway. pa- with paper and, and, and whatnot. Can you imagine? Um, did you use regular paper or was it that special fax thermal paper from, uh, you know, no, 1989? No. no, no, we have regular, we've, we've, come on, Craig, we've progressed, man. Yeah. So you can use regular printer paper. All right. Yeah, good. Exactly. I'm going to hang on. I'm going to write that. I'm going to note that down. Canada <laughs> is more advanced than I thought. Um, <laughs> just getting on uh, note bloat a little bit more. And again, note bloat's a term we often use, um, especially in the United States, where we say that, uh, you know, progress notes have just gotten um, gone from half a page or a page to six or seven pages sometimes because people are bringing in uh, discrete information from the electronic health record into their note because we've made it easy to do that. Um, uh, doctors always had the ability to write down every single piece of information. They just never did because that would be work. I like to, when thinking about note bloat, disconnect the technical from the non-technical and, and to say, hey, you know, um, I've been a doctor long enough uh, that uh, I was certainly writing notes on paper in the hospital. And uh, uh, I recall one day getting a letter at my office this is back when we had we got letters. Uh, there was no email from the hospital. Got a letter from the department chair, and I um, that's not something that one generally wants to get. And so I I uh, nervously opened it up, and it said, uh, "Dear Doctor Joseph, uh, we have reviewed five sample progress notes uh, from the last six months and found them to be acceptable. Congratulations!" And uh, <laughs> I. I, I didn't know that that was part of the recredentialing process, that they look at your notes and say, hey, are you putting in what we think are important? Now, no one ever at the hospital told me what's important. Hopefully, I learned that in medical school and residency. And I think that we can do the same you know, outside of technology. So I, I like that idea that you mentioned, hey, we're trying to give you flexibility. We're trying to give you the ability to, to do what you need to do. But we also acknowledge that one uh, practice might be different than another, and certainly patients are different from one another. Do you uh, at sick kids? Um, and I don't think I, I mentioned this uh, sick kids, a hospital for sick children in, in Toronto is one of the top ranked pediatric hospitals in the world. We're not talking about North America here in the world. Are, are, do you all have some sort of uh, a quality system whereby uh, you, you grade 
uh, uh, notes or evaluate physicians, attending physicians as part of the recertification process? I know I'm putting you on the, on the spot here and you're not an expert in that, but does that sound like something that happens? And if so, uh, how nervous does it make you? So, so we don't, um, not that I'm aware of, but, and that would come through me if, if it came, because I chair the health records committee too, um, and work closely with our chief medical officer. And we have a great team. I'm really concerned about usability and uh, oh, physician wellness and provider wellness. And that's a whole separate topic. We do use some of the EMR embedded tools to look at length of notes, but we don't use it as a credentialing criteria. We We use it as you know, a flag system to say, is that part of like pajama time? How much time are they spending in notes? Is there opportunities to improve as well? Um, and then we also go back and we look at some of the um, feedback we get from our community providers who say, Kareem, your notes are way too long. Like you're, the what we're getting back from, from sick kids is way too long. Then we'll go back in and say, yeah, do you need all that information to be sent back to the primary care uh, uh, providers in our community? So we do have a feedback mechanism where we do reach out to our community providers. Um, mostly they just complain to me about our refer referral process. Um, so, you know, that's, 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 uh, yeah, that's where, so no, 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 nothing on credentials um, that we do as a gate. Uh, Kareem, so what about uh, clinician burnout? Are doctors and nurses sick and tired of being doctors and nurses in Canada? And if, that's the case, you know, what, what are you guys doing about that? Yeah, we, we treat uh, burnout with uh, a $10 Tim Hortons gift card. So we've, it, we've eliminated it. Um, really? There is no burnout in Canada. Um, so, you know, like a next question, please. Next, um, next question. Move on, Jerome. <laughs> you know, I, I think there's so many, as you know, there's so many different multifaceted ways of, of, of addressing burnout. Um, and especially coming out of COVID, where we're all feeling really overwhelmed, uh, administrative tasks. Um, so I think there's always an element of burnout. We have a we have an important, you know, wellness team, um, and we're trying to take a real measured approach. So you know, people talk about like alert fatigue and alerts as being a component of a contributor, EMR being a contributor to burnout. You know, I think it's it's one it's one piece of the puzzle. Where I'll give you an example. So when we went live with Epic, I I found out that some of our medical staff never signed into the EMR system, even when we had it before. And so I said, well, you know, you're not doing that. He says, Kareem, I have people for that. So trainees. Now, so, so when you then go back to them and say, you know, it's really important for you to sign <clears throat> an admission note or an OR note that one of your fellows or trainees has done from a medical legal perspective, from an oversight, from a learning perspective, a teaching perspective, is that undue burden or is that what's something that they're actually supposed to do as, as prescribed by the public hospitals act from way back when that a physician should sign an admission note within 24 hours of admission. So people say, Oh, the EMR is making me do this. No, you, you, this is actually part of being a physician. You have to document. So when you say, yeah, I'm having to do extra work, you know, I, like, I, you know, I have issues with that. But when we start, tell, when we start um, looking at um, extra work that you're actually having to do, what, where's team-based work? 
you know, what's the use of medical directives? What's a what's a physician mandated order? What's what can what's in the purview of the the wider health team? We don't have a lot of medical assistants. We're using more nurse practitioners. They're a godsend to our team as part of team-based care. We have some physician assistants that we're using in the in the emergency department as well and in some other parts of the hospital. So, you know, long answer to this is like, yeah, burnout is there, but there's other things like job satisfaction, number of years, um, remuneration, a lot of, lot of different things, autonomy. So hopefully that helps. That That's very helpful. I think um, uh, I, I was, I'm fascinated by the, the fact that uh, Tim Hortons is how you solved um, a burnout. We have pizza. Uh, in the United States. I don't know if you have pizza in Canada, but we have pizza in the United States and that's how we solve burnout. They are the inventors of Hawaiian pizza. (laughs) (laughs) Pineapple. Love pineapple on pizza. Oh, that's best. And hot peppers, of course. Mm. Sweet and spicy. Or or fried chicken, Craig, maybe, but let's see. But that's another story. (laughs) We're learning a lot about traditional Canadian uh, culinary uh, history here. You mentioned usability with respect to notes and, you know, um, which is something that often people don't think about, but you, you're thinking about, uh, you know, how can I incentivize, kind of push folks to make a note that is usable by the next person who's reading that note? And, and sometimes that next person is the future you, doctor. And uh, oftentimes it's a, a specialist or um, uh, in the U.S., often it's uh, someone related to billing functions who's looking at your note. Um, uh, thinking from that kind of design perspective, you've talked about notes and how to try to design them to, to maximize benefits. Are, are, there, are there clinical decision support tools that nudge physicians or, or even uh, patients in, in the direction that you want them to go? And, and uh, it's, I'm not really asking if you have them. I know you have them. Are they, do you think that they're different between Canada and U.S.? Are there different nudges or different factors that uh, a Canadian physician would respond to differently than, a, than an American, perchance? I'd have to give that some thought, Craig, because I, I, I don't think so. Um, I think we want to do right by the patient and by our colleagues. So I, I don't think there should be. Are there differences? I haven't seen other than the fact that I guess when I've received transfer packages from patients who've been repatriated from the States, you know, I get a volume of a printout of paper and it's just sometimes it's just repetition. but it's uh, it's it's quite complete and and that's where you get into sort of you know filter failure versus information overload right just just send me like a, a cumulative patient profile or just one discharge summary and just tell me what i need to do that's what we're hearing from from our community providers to be able to say yes great the narrative is important but these are the next steps that we need for the next 5 days or what have you um and if we can empower our patients as well like on discharge to say this is, you know, obviously this is what you have to watch out for, for the next three days or four days or five days, you know, and, and how can, how can sort of technology help that to not have the patient potentially bounce back to the ED or how can we use tools? Um, you know, there's tools on take a picture of your wound. Um, we have a, we have a, a project for hypospadias repair um, from one of our urologists and it's a long-term follow-up. And we are sharing the pictures of what, say, a tool would be 
one day, like what a wound would be one day, two days, three days, four days, five days, a week or 10 days, two weeks after surgery so that the patient can say, ah, it's it's healing normally or, you know, because sometimes it's, oh, there's discharge, but is that normal three or four days after that wound? Um, And so you can, you can sort of set the patient up for appropriate expectations and they can actually upload some of their photos and, and keep it in through my chart or what have you. We, we haven't published the results on that yet. I think they're still gathering information, but that's a research project that one of our urologists is very interested in, even for long-term. So just empowering the patient as well. So Kareem, you're a mentor at the Creative Destruction Lab, which sounds like at first, an amazingly cathartic thing to be a part of just th- thinking of creative ways to, to blow things up. But, but then I realized I, I got that wrong. So can you tell us a little bit about what the CDL is and how a CMIO and eMERGE physician um, fits in with that group? Yeah. So CDL uh, is done through Rotman School of Management, really, really tremendous group and team. Um, I was involved with Rotman in 2007 as part of a advanced health leadership program that I took uh, that was sponsored by the the ministry and our our hospital. Um, and you know I've tried to stay in touch with the Rotman team. I've lectured there a little bit uh, for for some of their global MBA programs, and they asked for you know expressions of interest for me to be there. And what I do is I, I give. Uh, the the applicants or the people going through the the program advice on how to break into the hospital system and to say as a clinician I don't think that that would work or this is what you need to look at so um, and I've had opportunity to, to to participate in some funding arrangements as well um, and you know um, be part of that and it's been great because you've got some young entrepreneurs coming through. Who really want to stir stir up the the system, and sometimes I have to give them a dose of reality to say, this is going to take a long time. Selling into the hospital sector is going to be a long time. Not to be a naysayer, but to be a realist, to be able to say, this is where the funding, where I see the opportunity. Um, just reviewed a company not through CDL, but through another group of uh, companies from physicians called Halo Health. A plug for Halo Health and Luke Sheen and the team there great work that they're doing, but, you know, physicians are getting more and more savvy and participating. And sometimes, you know, you, you know, what they say is, you know, for physicians, how do you make a small fortune in tech? Start with a big fortune, right? So, cause we're, we're, we're not that savvy. So, you know, it's really important. So CDL has been great. I, I've learned a lot about how to evaluate a company as an early stage, middle stage, what, you know, what's the path to exit, things like that. So, I've provided my insight and uh, uh, being able to provide value to some of the, our participant companies as well. So there's actually no hammers involved, is, and I'm disappointed if that's the case. No, but it, there's no there's no hammers. But we do get together, and uh, some of the people are have a hammer background, so that's okay. Um, and you know, CDL has expanded, right? It's it's all over the world now, um, and and. That's I think that's what we really need is to be able to bring early early thought leadership, early um, stage companies to say how can we go from sort of bench to bedside in in the shortest matter. So you know we could talk about like innovation, which is a big thing. How do you break the cycle of these big EMR behemoths? Um, how 
how does innovation and operational coexist in a in a in a hospital or in a health system? Where's the tension? Where's the synergies? Um, and I don't know. Are you going to ask about ChatGPT? Because I, like this is not me. I'm actually an avatar. So you haven't even noticed yet. So you you know the ChatGPT that I'm using is is quite amazing. So and and there's no answers to that. I don't have any good answers um, uh, on on that too. So. Yeah, I don't I don't know what that is. Um chat GP Jerome, have you heard of this? Uh maybe it's a Canadian thing. Is it do you buy it at Tim Hortons? At Starbucks. Oh, Starbucks. Uh, well. Over over here we call it Jerome Bot and uh and it works very well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's already interesting. I I I don't know. I, I think that whole AGI generative AI, how much of it is on that, you know, that Gartner hype cycle of inflated expectations? We're gonna come crashing down into these trough of disillusionment. Um, I think there's promise here. Um, Chris Longhurst was just on ABC, I think, talking about that study where clinicians, like patients loved the empathetic responses from the chat engine more than they did from the physicians. And Chris aptly said, well, if you give clinicians, you know, half an hour to generate a response, of course, they're going to be empathetic. Um, but if you just give them one second, along with the other thousands of messages that they're being bombarded by, you know, you're going to give a one word response or two word response, you know, blood work, fine. See you in six months <laughs> or see you next week rather than your CBC looks a little bit night and yada, yada. Um, so there's, there's a fine balance. Yeah. My, my, um, uh, my take on, on, uh, on generative AI is that, uh, cause I've been asked where, where is it on the hype cycle? And, you know, my answer was from, with some respect, it's not, it's not on the hype cycle cause it is real. Um, meaning I think it's really good at summarizing information and taking in a lot of information and kind of, um, distilling it down to, to what's good. And, and, and that ability, because it, it doesn't have time constraints, like, like, uh, humans do, uh, it can sound empathetic. Um, and so some of those things are very helpful. And I know, uh, uh, Epic among other EHR vendors are, are starting to try to incorporate it not in deciding what disease you have or how best to treat it, but in how to respond to your patient message about your, your new symptom or uh, how to summarize those lab results so that I don't have to. And, um, I, you know, I think that's, uh, that can be here very soon and, and that would be a help. And that's, you know, that's largely where we've seen AI be successful in healthcare. Anyways, there's sort of extension type applications. Um, you know, uh, radiology is a, is a, I, th I think a great example that everyone's familiar with. Um, and I think chat for chat GPT, that, that sort of extension, um, uh, framework is, is where we're going to, uh, again, see sort of those early wins or that first path to the, what, what, what does Gartner call it? The, uh, plateau of productivity. That's where, you know, it's those sorts of applications that throw it'll land. Yeah. We've, we've, uh, if I may just talk about, a, 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 we started with a pilot in our health information management. So the way the hospital is funded is every year, we have to submit um, our coded data to the ministry for reimbursement and things. So we need to know, you know, what's the most responsible diagnosis and what are the comorbidities and things like that. And we've used a vendor, Semantic Health, um, um, a Canadian company to be able to look at all our notes, a lot of our notes and be able to look at our, to, to the coders, to be able to say, this is likely the, the list of issues that the patient had, and we'd validate them with the clinician and then go back forward. 
And I know in the US, you've got like massive coding teams right at the point of care, right? Like on the wards. And, and one of the clinicians who came from the US said, Kareem, how come I'm not getting bombarded by nurses asking me, Dr. Jessa, is this your, is this the right, you know, MRDX or, you know, can you just alter that? We do, we don't do, like, we don't have it right up front. We're trying, we do it sort of later on, but we're trying to get more real time with that because it's still an issue for us. So we found great value in being able to go through a large number of charts in a short period of time. So you still use the coders, right? You still use the coders, but they can get through complex charts really quickly. Um, and we found great value with that company um, and FDE equivalents. Like we've, we've been able to get increased reimbursement um, from that as well. So that I think I think the back, those backend processes are are well established, um, the automation and things as well. Kareem, we ask everybody who's on the podcast the same question at the end. Um, we just like to hear about two or three things that you interact with on a regular basis that are so well designed, and they could be outside of healthcare, but are so well designed that they bring you joy to interact with. So um, you know, we talked about Tim Hortons. I love that Tim Hortons app. To be able to, you know, it charges my credit card or my Tim card, what have you, and I can get my steep tea with one cream um, ready um, in in two seconds, and I can look at my colleagues who are waiting in line and not do that. That's the one thing. The second thing that that I actually love is being able to go to the gas station, pull up to the gas station, go to try to get gas. And I hit the SO application on my phone. It knows where I am, right? It knows the gas station that I'm at. All I have to do is say, pay for fuel and say which, which uh, gas pump I'm at and plug in the number. And it says ready for fueling. I, I go fill my gas, done. I, I, and, and that's it. I don't get a receipt. I get my SO points. Um, or now there are PC optimum points, but it's been, that's, that's a, that's amazing. And like, you can't get, you can't get spoofed with your credit card. Cause there's, you know, those talks about people, uh, overlaying things on your, on the gas pump for your credit card. There's that piece. The other piece that I like is, you know, as an emergency physician, our schedules change all the time. So we have a little scheduling app, uh, that we use, um, like Metricade that you can you know post a shift or you could trade and you can pick up shifts you can see what shifts are available if i have time to work or doing anything like that i'm still practicing i still do clinical work and i use that um very nicely rather than saying you know phoning people or sending an email to the group and saying hey can anybody trade for this shift or what have you so that's been really great uh, to be able to do that so those are a few things that bring bring joy to my life and then I like my golf club app too, when if I book a tea time and things like that too. So, so they've got some of the stuff figured out. Here's my question about uh, Timmy, Timmy Horton. We have this thing I think you've mentioned called Starbucks. Um, I don't know if you have that, that technology in Canada. Actually I do yeah. because yeah, I've been to Starbucks do. in Canada. So that's me. But just $6 being... for a coffee. Come on. Yeah. Well, that's Canadian dollars. So it's a dollar fifty American. I think. Um, <laughs> I think that's how. I don't know what the. I don't know what the conversion rate is. Let me ask you this: Have you ever gone and ordered something from uh, Tim Hortons on that cool app that you mentioned, and then you go uh, to pick it up, and they're like, "Oh, we don't. We don't have cream. We don't have whatever it is you wanted that you actually ordered and paid for." That's never happened. Never. 
Okay. Well, that's but I'm, I'm s- simple, right? Simple. Steep tea with cream. I mean, you can't run out of cream as a coffee shop. Like, cool. um, but you know, this soya bean matcha, whatever, like, you know, that's, that's my order. How did you know? Yeah. Oh, well, it's okay, Craig. But I, 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 I determine where the, the beans are sourced. You know, I, I want them from a specific area of Morocco. This just points to the fact that Tim Ho's is a far, far superior experience overall. Well, there you go. There you go. Well, I tell you, I've never, but I mean, I order simple things. I don't order a lot of things, but it's all, it's all, it's all good. And Starbucks doesn't have Timbits. Just say They don't. They don't. I have to say, I don't know when the last time I ate a Timbit though, I have to say, because mm. I have eaten a lot of Timbits in the past. <laughs> that's, pro- that's probably where they belong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just, it's not good. You know, it's not good. Kareem, thanks so much for joining us today. It was really a pleasure speaking with you. Gentlemen, I had a blast. I look forward to catching up with you in person. And anytime you want to come to Canada A, um, just come on up. And uh, we had to put the A in. Um, And uh, no, I don't know your cousin who lives in Edmonton. Okay. I thought for sure you did. All right. Let me uh, let me uh, finish this up. This podcast was sponsored by Tim Hortons, <laughs> Tim Hortons for all your Timmy bit needs. Tim Hortons found at timhortons.com or .ca. I don't know because I'm just making this up. And in fact, it's not sponsored by anyone. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. To learn more about Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children, go to sickkids.ca. Check back for more episodes of Designing for Health wherever you listen to podcasts or on nordicglobal.com. Till next time, we'll see you in network. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. This helps others find the podcast as well.